Welcome again to Change a Mind About You, where we are on a journey together to awaken to our true identity. I'm your host, Kevin Mack, and today we're going to complete our discussion of our inner world. In a previous episode, we likened our inner world to the tabernacle described in the book of Exodus. We discussed the significance of the furnishings inside both the courtyard and the in the holy place within the tent of meeting. Having done this now, we turn our attention to the holy of holies, or the most holy place, the other part located within the tent of meeting. Behind the curtain that separated the two rooms in the tent of meeting was the Ark of the Covenant. Inside of the Ark were placed the two stone tablets upon which the Ten Commandments were written the words of the covenant, along with a jar of manna and Aaron's staff that budded. Each of these items have their own special significance. The two stone tablets, which had the Ten Commandments written on them, were to serve as a reminder of the covenant the Israelites had made with the Lord. So Moses told the Israelites in Deuteronomy 4, verses 12 through 13, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow, and then wrote them on two tablets of stone. The fact that the tablets were stored inside the ark is at first curious. The ark is located in inside a place accessible only to the high priest. If the Israelites were to be reminded of the terms of the covenant by the presence of the stone tablets, why were they not located in a more accessible place where everybody where, where everybody could see them? Even the high priest, who entered the Holy of Holies once per year, didn't see them, for they remained inside the ark. If you don't review what's on the tablets from time to time, won't you just forget what was on them? Clearly, a different point is attempted to be made here. And here it is. Moses again speaks to the Israelites. Here in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your heart. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. It was the Lord's intention here that the commandments be written on the hearts of the people. The people were then responsible for both teaching and writing the commandments down in conspicuous places. Therefore, keeping the terms of the covenant was really an inside-out process. Its essence was maintained from within and then manifested outwardly. 
That is one aspect of the significance of keeping the tablets in the ark. But there's another. Another aspect has to do with the fact that, it, that as Moses stated, the Lord is one. One with what? He is one with his creation. Since he created humanity, he is one with humanity. That is why he could say he would never leave or forsake us in Joshua 1.5 and Hebrews 13.5. He is both in all of us and one with us. Thus, to be faithful to the covenant is to be faithful to one's self. The next object in the ark is the jar of manna. Why was that placed in the ark? After the Lord led the Israelites out of Egypt, he took them through the wilderness. There they began to grumble and complain against them because they were hungry. In response, the Lord rained down bread from heaven to feed them. The Israelites called this bread manna. They were to gather only what they needed daily. If any tried to save some of the manna for the next day, it would rot and smell and become inedible. What was the Lord attempting to teach them through this exercise? Moses again provides the answer. Here's Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 and 3. Moses wrote, Remember how the Lord God led you all the way in the wilderness these forty years? to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So the jar of manna was preserved and placed with the tablets of stone stating the covenant. The tablets had engraved upon them the spoken word of God. It was primarily a code of conduct governing relationships. The manna was physical food, which was provided in the wilderness to sustain the Israelites. The underlying message of the preserved jar of manna to the Israelites, is God through his every word provides for and meets all our needs. So, as the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. That's Exodus 16, verse 34. The manna in this jar does not rot after a day or two. In the presence of the Lord, it is preserved. The message here is clear. The provision of physical food in the wilderness pointed to the source of their eternal sustenance, who is the Lord. Now the third item in the ark was Aaron's staff that budded just prior to the uh, to this event the budding of the rod there was a rebellion in Israel's camp 
After the rebellion had been put down, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, In Numbers 17, verses 2 through 5, Speak to the Israelites, and get twelve staffs from them, one from each leader of their ancestral tribes. Write the name of each man on his staff. On the staff of Levi, write Aaron's name, for there must be one staff for the head of each ancestral tribe. Place them in the tent of meeting in front of the ark of the covenant law, where I meet with you. The staff belonging to the man I choose will sprout, and I will rid myself of this constant grumbling against you by the Israelites. It was Aaron's staff that sprouted. In fact, it not only sprouted, it also blossomed and produced almonds the very next day, as we see in Numbers 17, verse 8. What the Lord sought to teach the Israelites through this experience was not only that Moses and Aaron were given their positions of authority in the community by the Lord, but also that the Lord's will for the community is that they would be united, that there would be no divisions among them. For God is one, and they were all created in his image and likeness. So the contents of the ark, the stone tablets, the jar of manna, and Aaron's staff that budded represent the heart, provision, and unity of God, respectively. These are all inward conditions of being, which give us a clue as to why they were placed inside of the ark. The ark was also equipped with a cover. The cover on top of the ark was called the atonement cover, or the mercy seat. This was this was the location from which the Lord would meet with Moses. Let's read from Exodus 25, verses 21 and 22, where the Lord is speaking to Moses. Place the cover on top of the ark, and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. There, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. In general, the Holy of Holies was off-limits to everyone, including the priests. The only exception was once per year, when the high priest was allowed to enter, and that was always on the Day of Atonement. On that day, also known as Yom Kippur, the high priest was involved in a ritual of extraordinary significance. This ritual is described in detail in Leviticus 16. Let's go read from verses 32 through 34 of Leviticus 16. The priest who was anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest, Aaron being the first of the high priests, and of course uh, there were those to come after him, so the priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar, and for the priests, 
and all the members of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. The ritual conducted by the high priest, described in Leviticus 16, pictures reconciliation between the Lord and the entire Israelite community. This reconciliation is mediated through the high priest, who is from among the people, but is considered blameless before the Lord. During this ritual, the high priest first has to prepare himself prior to making atonement for for himself and his household. A bull was sacrificed as a sin offering for the high priest and his household, and a goat was sacrificed as a sin offering for the people. The blood from each of these sacrifices was then sprinkled on the atonement cover inside the Holy of Holies. The high priest did the same in the holy place and on the horns of the altar of sacrifice out in the courtyard. The sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat and before the ark is symbolic of the community's desire to seek atonement, that is, reconciliation with the Lord. The ritual is a reminder of the blood of the covenant by which they express their eternal devotion to the Lord. After the Lord had instructed them through Moses as to how they were to relate to one another, and that was in Exodus uh, chapters 20 through 23, Moses built an altar to the Lord on which to sacrifice burnt and fellowship offerings. After the offerings were slaughtered, we read in Exodus 24, verses 6 through 8, Moses took half of the blood from the offerings and put it in bowls. In the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, in accordance with all these words. So the sprinkling of the blood is a reminder of the covenant Israel made with the Lord. But the sprinkling of blood did not complete the reconciliation process. Once this cleansing ritual is completed, the high priest turns his attention to a live goat that was actually one of two goats that were taken from among the community. The first high priest to conduct this ritual, of course, was Aaron. So again, let's go back and read again from Leviticus 16. We'll be reading verses 20 through 22. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. 
He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. So after the sprinkling of the blood before the Lord, the high priest turns his attention to this live goat. This goat is the means by which permanent removal of sin takes place. The goat will carry all sin to a remote place, the scripture says. The King James Version actually refers to this remote place as a land not inhabited. So this ritual ultimately pictures the new covenant spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah. When Jeremiah wrote in verse 34 of Jeremiah 31, For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. The reconciliation of the Lord with all the people is now complete. And notice the entire process is executed by one high priest for all the people. Today, the act of permanently removing sin is the work of the high priest who is now Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, as we're told in Hebrews 9, verse 15. The new covenant was also established by blood. But unlike the old covenant, which sprinkled animal blood on the people, the blood of the new covenant was represented symbolically by wine and taken internally by the people involved. This ritual was initially performed, initially performed, I should say, by Jesus as the Christ at what we call the Last Supper. It's written in Mark 14, verses 23 and 24. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. In this ceremony, Jesus not only establishes the new covenant, but also makes a startling revelation. He discloses the full force behind a statement from the old covenant. And here it is in Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. If the life of a creature is in the blood and Jesus as the Christ gives you his blood to drink, he has given you his life. It is that life that makes atonement for you. 
In other words, Christ shares his life with us. Or as Paul put it in Colossians 1, verse 26 through 27, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed. God has chosen to make known the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's right, folks. The very life of Jesus as Christ dwells in you. And this life is shared with everyone. We all possess it. That is the meaning behind the eating of bread and the drinking of wine at the Last Supper. The bread of life is the word of God. Deuteronomy 8.3 and Matthew 4.4 The bread represents that which sustains us. The wine represents blood, which in turn represents life. Leviticus 17.11 Blood also is the means by which covenants with the Lord are established and reenacted. The eating of the bread and the drinking of the wine also pictures fellowship. The sharing of a meal with someone in biblical times signified acceptance. Jesus shared meals with all kinds of people, and he got flack for it. Notice in Matthew 9, we're going to read verses 10 through 13. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. So eating with someone during biblical times symbolized the common bond between the individuals involved. Jesus knew that. He also knew that those that needed his help were those who recognized their errors and were ready to receive correction. Those who are aware of their errors are becoming enlightened. As the Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-7, through 7, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Fellowship means sharing. And such sharing was one of the hallmarks of the early followers of Christ. Look what, look, let's see what was written about them in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 47. It says, All the believers were together and had everything in common. 
See, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. They did such things and were blessed for it because they recognized that they all shared membership in a common body, the body of Christ. Their shared identity is found in Christ, the image of the living God, and believe it or not, so is ours. That is really the entire lesson the construction of the tabernacle was meant to teach. The Lord in our midst, in our midst exists within all of us, and we are all joined together in him. He created us to be extensions of himself. We have forgotten this and went off instead to form our own independent identities. Yet he is calling us to return to him and therefore wants you to change your mind about you. Well, that concludes the presentation for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Kevin Mack, the host of Change Your Mind About You, reminding you that there is way more to you than meets the eye. Deep down in your inner world lies a beauty that is far beyond description. And that beauty is shared with every other human being. Until next time, Take care, stay present, and be well, my friends.